Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Tales Beyond Time, episode 38. Welcome back, fellow travelers. This is Tales Beyond Time, presented by Realm. I'm Marco Palmieri, your guide on another journey into the unusual. Our first story this week is from multiple award-winning short fiction powerhouse Jeffrey Ford, an acknowledged master of odd and uncomfortable stories. The Blameless is no exception. Originally published in 2016 in the anthology A Natural History of Hell from Small Beer Press and narrated for Realm by Stephen J. Cohen, The Blameless was also selected for the 2017 edition of Year's Best Dark Fantasy and Horror and Year's Best Weird Fiction, Volume 4. In a world where exorcisms are popular, a skeptical couple attends one for their neighbor's daughter. Without further ado, I give you The Blameless. They were sitting at their respective ends of the couch, drinking coffee. He was telling her about a cucumber salad he'd made a few days earlier, and she was going through the day's mail, half listening. In the midst of him reeling off his newly invented recipe, she held up a square envelope and set her coffee down on the table next to her. A wedding invitation, she said, cutting him off. Who's it from? The people up the street. Which ones? The Crorys? I have no idea, he said. Three doors down and on the other side, remember we met them at Canoe Carnival, Ina's a secretary at the high school, and he's some kind of engineer. She opened the envelope and took out a card. Who's getting married? It's for the daughter, Grace. She's not even out of high school, I don't think. It's not a wedding. It's an invitation to her exorcism. He laughed. Get out of here. Dear Tom and Helen, we hope that you will be able to attend our daughter Grace's spring exorcism. It's at their house on Sunday, May 7th at 7 p.m., two weeks from tomorrow. What? This is big now, exorcism, she said. Haven't you heard about it? No. Yeah, people are getting their kids exercise for whatever ails them. What do you mean, he said. You know, if your kid doesn't listen, is screwing up in school, hanging with knuckleheads. You mean sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Basically, I heard it on NPR. A few evangelical groups started, and then it spread. Now people who aren't even religious are getting it done. It costs like a grand to have your kid's spring cleaned. That's crazy. Which is why we should go. I want to check it out. Are you serious? It'll be interesting, and we can meet some people. I have zero interest. You're going, she said. You were just sitting here five minutes ago, carrying on about some fucking cucumber salad. You need to get out of the house. At 6.30 on May 7th, she put on a turquoise dress, matching shoes and jewelry. She told Tom that she tried to pick a spring color. He dressed in a black t-shirt and jeans, and she said, it's not a funeral, you know. He said, we'll represent cosmic light and darkness. She shook her head, 
sighed and left the room. He changed his shirt. It was raining, so they took the umbrella. Helen held it over both of them. As they made their way up the street, she pointed out through the dusk that the daffodils and lilacs were budding. Tom noticed that the lawns were going green. There was a softness to the breeze. The street light reflected a sheen off the wet asphalt, and the scent of worms was everywhere. There were cars parked in front of the Crory's house on both sides of the street. As they approached, they saw a man and a woman on the doorstep. He was ringing the bell. That's Jake and Alice, said Helen. It's not too late to go home, Tom said. Go ahead, she told him. I'll go by myself. Say the devil shows up. The invitation says there'll be punch and finger sandwiches. I hope they appreciate that I wore my pink button shirt. How could they not? A middle-aged blonde woman answered the door. So glad you can make it, she said in a high-pitched voice laced with gin. Her dress was the same color pink as Tom's shirt. Hi, Ina, said Helen. You must be pretty excited. Well, she said, yes, but we need to keep a lid on it, you know, to retain the religious dignity of things. Absolutely, said Tom. When they entered the living room, everyone turned and stared. After eyeing Tom and Helen up and down, a few neighbors nodded and waved and turned back to their conversations. Helen's friend, Alice, who was also a nursing administrator, came over and said hello. They worked at different local hospitals, but they knew all the same people. In an instant, they were off on a conversation about work. Tom spotted a guy holding a beer and went in search of one. In the kitchen, he found a cooler and his ex-assistant soccer coach, Bill Stewart. The two had bonded years earlier through losing seasons over the fact that neither of them had ever played or knew anything about soccer. Tom chose a can of rolling rock from the cooler, opened it, and looked quickly over his shoulder to make sure they were alone. Ready for the exorcism? he asked. Bill leaned against the sink, arms folded across his chest, beer in his right hand. I can deal with religion, but this is like some kind of children of the corn shit, he said. Tom laughed. Bill took a drink of beer and said, You know... With these people, everything's an infraction. If you sneeze and fart at the same time, you're cut out of the rapture. Tom milled around, had a few beers, and checked in with Helen, who was talking baseball with O'Shea, the owner of the service station. Nothing seemed pressing, so he sat down in a chair at the end of the food table and watched the goings-on. Right next to him, he was surprised to find a bowl of cucumber salad. He had a small plate. Better than mine, he thought. While he ate, snatches of conversation popped out of the surrounding storm of voices. From one of them, he learned that when the cashier at the pizza place had her kid exercised, there was shotgun vomiting and bed shaking to beat the band. From another, he overheard that there was now a 24-hour exorcist service in the tri-state area. The devil's busy, thought Tom and then Grace made her entrance. She was wearing what looked like a young girl's communion dress, all white, sleeveless, satin and crinoline, with a pair of white patent leather shoes. Her brown hair was twisted into an intricate single braid down her back, and on top of her head rested a wreath of tiny white and violet flowers. How different she looked to Tom compared to the last he'd seen her. He'd been driving by the recycle center downtown around Christmas time and noticed a tall, lanky kid jumping up and down and flapping his arms. He realized it was the Zex's son from around the corner. Morrison was his name. As Tom passed, he saw the reason for the goofball antics. The Crory girl was sitting on a low wall, rocking back and forth, laughing. She had a cigarette going. Her hair hung loose. Her eyeliner and mascara were copious and black. Tom remembered that the sight of them had made him smile. Unlike that winter day, she now seemed embarrassed, and her face was scrubbed clean and shone like a polished apple.
he hardly recognized her. She was pretending to be calm, like a bride on her wedding day. In less than a second, a crowd drew around her. Tom heard Helen whispering in his ear, slow down on the beer. He turned, and she was standing next to his chair. I'm just trying to retain the religious dignity of things, he told her. Grace looks beautiful, doesn't she? Almost as lovely as you. She lightly smacked him in the back of the head. He pointed to the cucumber salad, and they laughed. You know, Tom said, I see people giving her cards. Do they actually have, like, cards for this now? I have one in my purse for her. What's it say? Congratulations on your exorcism. I didn't go for the funny ones. It's very tasteful. How much are we giving her? Fifty. Geez, she'll clean up. Helen went and got the card, and Tom stood. They slowly made their way toward the crowd of well-wishers. Before they could get anywhere close to Grace, though, Mr. Crory appeared. It was the first they'd seen of him. He stood stiff and smiling, dressed in a powder blue pajama suit with bow tie. Escape from Hugh Hefner's closet, Helen said from the corner of her mouth. Dig the smoke-tinted circular lenses, said Tom. There were visible beads of sweat on Crory's forehead. He said, ladies and gentlemen, friends and neighbors, the exorcist will be here any second. I ask that when he arrives, you all back off to that side of the room, in front of the window. You must remain as quiet as possible throughout the exorcism. If you need to leave, please use the back door, which is through the kitchen. Ina and Grace and I want to thank you for joining us. Everybody applauded. When he was finished, he went down the hallway and returned with a cot, which he set up in front of the fireplace. The final touch was a puffy pillow the size of a cloud in a cream-colored pillowcase. There was a loud knock at the door. Ina said, it's him, and finished off the remainder of a martini. A rumble went through those assembled. Some smiled vaguely, and the rest wore expressions of guilt. I wonder if I can take pictures said Helen, holding up her phone. Just leave the flesh off, who'll know? Ina led the exorcist into the living room. He was a short, heavy-set guy in a baggy black suit, dark beard and hair going gray. Mr. Crory shook hands with him, and Ina gave him a hug and a kiss on the cheek. She then turned to the neighbors and said, This is the Reverend Emmanuel Kahn, He's the high holy blameless from the local chapter of God's church before the flood of mankind. During the crowd's applause, Helen whispered, Check those brows. Tom did. It was as if the reverend had half a handlebar mustache over each eye. The Crorys backed away to join the crowd, and it was just Grace and Emmanuel Kahn. That name made Tom giddy and brought him to the very edge of laughing out loud. The reverend set his black bag down on the floor and took the girl's extended fingers in his hands. He looked into her eyes and said, Are you ready now? In a regional dialect, neither south nor north. She put on a very slight smile, and a tear ran down her cheek. Aww, said voices in the crowd. They were promptly shushed by Mr. Crory. Grace nodded to the reverend and he released her hands. I'm going to remove some evil spirits from you today, employing serenity, the language in which angels dream, and then I'll bring to bear the righteous weapons of the Almighty who has whispered to me through my eyes the number four. And so I will take a demon from your left eye, one from your right ear, one from your mouth, and then... One from lower down. The last will be the most difficult, but you'll get through it. You're young and strong. Gray smiled and nodded, and then he took her fingertips again and led her to the cot. Starting to get creepy, said Helen. Out of his black bag, the blameless one took a plastic bottle of water, a cigarette liner, a pack of Marlboros, and an eight-inch hat pin. He set these items down on the seat of an empty chair and then turned back to the cot. 
comfortable? He asked Grace. She nodded. You will soon be in a trance, he said. Don't try to listen to what I'm saying. Instead, think of the sound of my voice as water, flowing upward into the land without worry. He turned to face the gathering, opened his mouth, and out came a string of gibberish, startling in its speed. More followed, like blasts from an Uzi. Tom heard somebody behind him ask quietly, Is that Latin? He knew enough Latin to know it was instead just nonsense, like bad scat singing. Phrases like dippy-doop and fa-fa-fa-fa-fa-fa were a giveaway. The reverend trod in tight circles, always turning his head so as to keep his imperious gaze trained on the crowd. Just when Tom was ready to slip out into the kitchen for a beer, Khan suddenly broke from his little circle with a move that became a slow, loopy dance. He was all over the place, back and forth, side to side, movement minus style and rhythm. At one point, he bent his forearms in toward his chest and waved his elbows like a chicken. Through all of it, the gibberish poured forth. Ridiculous said Helen. I've had enough, but you gotta get a shot of this guy before we go. I've got like a dozen of him already. Let's blow. Okay, Helen said, but Grace opened her mouth and groaned in an echoing underground voice that was chilling. Tom moved closer to Helen and took her hand. The place was dead quiet. Even the reverend went silent. Another groan came. Her entire body was trembling, and one steel leg of the cot tapped a code on the hardwood floor. Emmanuel Kahn lit a cigarette, picked up the hat pin, and addressed the crowd. Watch closely, he said. I am now going to evict from Grace's left eye a demon known as the Skitterbee, prince of illicit visions. This should go quickly now. He took a drag of the cigarette and held it in the corner of his mouth while walking backward toward the cot. He turned, leaned over the girl, and blew a stream of smoke into her face. Quick as a snake, his free hand shot out and it appeared he was pinching Grace's vacant left eye. As he slowly withdrew his pincered fingers, Tom and Helen and the rest noticed a bright blue blob an amoebic form the size of a plum with wriggling almost limbs and a pointy head trapped between the nails of his index finger and thumb. The blameless let it squirm for a moment before stabbing it with a hat pin. The instant it was impaled, it shattered like a blue glass bubble. That was a trick, right? said Tom. I think he's like a magician, said Helen. Looked pretty real for whatever it was. A few people applauded, and Mr. Crory angrily shushed them. Emmanuel Kahn removed the cigarette from his lips and took a slight bow. That was easy enough, he said. Next, I will extract the mouth demon, Verbopolis, and the ear demon, Waxian. In one swift eviction, I will take them both out through the mouth. Not too many exorcists can perform this double demon pull. Look for a red figure and a green figure. He put the cigarette back in his mouth and took a deep drag. As he approached Grace, she gave a pitiful groan and belched. He swept low and blew smoke down her throat. His arm shot out, and those pinching fingers entered her open mouth. His wrist twitched once, and he withdrew two more writhing blobs. Their colors were brilliant. The red one growled, and the green wore a jellified smile. Verbopolis and Waxian, ladies and gentlemen, said the reverend. He jabbed the needle through both at once, and they burst into Christmas glitter. We will now have a 15-minute intermission before we descend into the lair of Moxioton. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in the living room headed for the kitchen. Ina was already there, dashing off a martini. Tom and Helen got beers and then stepped outside on the patio, where there was an awning and two chairs. The light rain tapped above them. Psyched for the lair of Moxiotan, said Tom. The whole thing's disturbing. You want to split? Helen took a drink and shook her head. No, I'm going to go back in there and watch, and if something crosses the line, I'm going to call the cops. What line? My line, she said. How's he doing, those little creatures? I don't know. Instantly inflating balloons? Is that a real thing? Instantly inflating balloons? I don't know, said Helen. I'm a product of the age of reason, though, she said. I'm with you. All I know is we're getting old and the world is weird, said Helen. Fucked up, said Tom, and put his arm around her. Tom and Helen maneuvered their way back through the crowded kitchen. Words of bewilderment and awe were in the air. Ina was dashing off a martini. Jake was darting his pinched fingers in Alice's mouth. She was giving him a look of disgust. In the shadowy corner of the dining room, Bill Stewart was asleep in a chair, his arms folded across his chest. They made it back to the living room and took a spot a little closer to the fireplace. Grace was still intermittently groaning, her stare still blank. The crowd soon came in from the kitchen. Crory lectured about silence, and the room quieted down. Everybody heard a toilet flush, and, after, the footsteps of the blameless approaching from the hall. His first order of business was to check on Grace's condition. He spoke his gibberish to her for a few seconds, and she panted. She needs to get heated up, the reverend said over his shoulder to the crowd. He danced erratic for a dozen steps, stopped only a few feet from Tom and Helen, and spoke. Moxioton, the granny champio of negative entities, he said. This spirit of destruction, spirit of grief, is an aggregate of Grace's sins, both real and imagined by herself and others. 
a powerful demon that once removed will leave her feeling five pounds lighter. My mind's reeling with scenarios of what's about to happen, none of them good, said Tom, leaning down over Helen. He looked up and saw Crory glaring at him. Tom gave him a wave and put his finger to his lips. Crory shook his head in disappointment. Helen caught sight of the exchange and said, What a Nazi. Meanwhile, the reverend again took to dancing and spitting out gibberish. Grace suddenly shrieked, and the crowd jumped and murmured. She shuddered, and the cot banged against the floor. Okay, okay, said Immanuel Kahn, and stood still, breathing heavily from the exertion of his pathetic waltz. What's about to happen is somewhat dangerous, so please remain calm and still. The creature I'm about to expose is frightening, but do not cry out, or he could possibly be drawn to you. He walked over to his black bag, leaned down and retrieved a gleaming nine-millimeter pistol from it. I've found a hat pin doesn't quite do it. Whoa, somebody said in the crowd and a half dozen people headed for the back door. Yes, that's it, said the reverend. Let those without faith in the Almighty flee his judgment. Tom looked down at Helen. She looked up at him. Without speaking, they decided to stay. Con stood and walked in front of Grace, facing the crowd. She was having a pitiful time of it, bouncing against the cot, crying out, the demon knows I'm coming for him, and now I will invite the young woman's father to join me and read off a list of her sins. And the mother will step forward and remove an article of her clothing so that I might proceed. He waved the parents out of the crowd with the muzzle of the gun and then put the weapon on the chair with his other tools. Crory and Ina stepped forward. He reached into the pocket of his jacket and brought out a pink 3x5 index card. She had tears streaming down her face, smearing her makeup, and held onto his right arm with a trembling hand. She wove, to and fro, obviously drunk. Her husband adjusted his glasses, cocked his big head forward, and read in a strained voice, Our daughter, Grace, has lost her way fallen into temptation under the influence of evil. Here are the sins we are conscious of. One, pleasuring herself. Two, partaking of the pernicious weed. Three, drinking alcohol. Four, consorting with atheists. Five, she is ten pounds overweight. Six, painting her face and wearing suggestive clothing. When he was finished, he assumed a solemn air, folded the paper twice, and returned it to his pocket. With the exception of the last one, Tom whispered, that's like a normal day for me. Helen stuck her index finger into his belly. Try twenty pounds overweight, she said. I just want my baby back, cried Ina. She looked wrung out, ready to drop over. Poor thing, said Helen. Crory returned to his spot in the crowd. The reverend ushered Ina to the cot. He leaned over the writhing girl, put his open palms less than an inch from her forehead, and moved them slowly around like he was polishing a car. He continued with this motion, down the length of her body, very nearly but not touching her throat, her breasts, her stomach. He spent a long time conjuring near her crotch, and then swept the rest of the way to her feet. Ina stepped over then and removed Grace's right shoe. In the act of pulling it off, she staggered, and the reverend caught her. He motioned Crory and said, Please take care of this. Crory emerged from the crowd to lead his wife away. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. The big toe, said the blameless, the seat of Moxioton's rule. You can't walk straight without a big toe, and the Almighty wants this young woman to walk straight. He went quickly to the chair, took up his cigarettes and lit one, keeping it in the corner of his mouth. 
he threw the pack down and grabbed the gun, holding it at the ready in his right hand. Back at the cot, he blew smoke rings onto Grace's big toe. He wiggled the fingers of his left hand all around Moxioton's lair. Stand back now, he yelled. The girl was fish-flopping on the cot, sweating, groaning, shrieking, letting off snatches of her own gibberish. The reverend's pinching fingers shot out and pincered something just beneath the curve of the toenail. He planted his feet and pulled back, and his pose made it obvious there was a struggle going on. Slowly, he extracted what looked like a khaki-colored blob. He backed up and drew it out a little further. It was immensely bigger than all the other demons put together, and it kept emerging from her toe. As it grew, it took on the features of a face, and it became clear he had it by its pointed nose. Its mouth opened to show sharp teeth, and it growled and barked. One of its big yellow eyes stared hard at the exorcist, and the other scanned the crowd. A string of curse words came from Khan, followed by a loud, Get the fuck out here! There was a snapping noise, and it retracted back into her toe. A wave of gasps erupted from the crowd. What the F? said Tom. Satan's bubblegum? said Helen. The reverend wiped his forehead with his sleeve, and then his fingers dove in for a second try. He caught hold of it. Pinched hard and pulled, Moxiotan appeared again, growing like an angry tan thought. Khan lifted the gun, stuck it into the side of the demon, and pulled the trigger twice. The crowd ducked at the report of the nine millimeter. The demon seemed insubstantial enough for the bullets to pass through easily, but they didn't. Gun smoke misted the weird tableau. Grace, the Reverend and Moxiotan reached a fever-pitch chorus of agonizing grunts and squeals. I've got to pull it free from her to destroy it, yelled the exorcist. The struggle continued. People fled for the back door. Then that sharp-toothed maw opened wide and a burst of fire shot out as if it were a flamethrower. The Reverend's baggy black suit, beard, and eyebrows were instantly aflame. He stumbled backward, firing off shots into the ceiling. His arms waved up and down, but this time he wasn't dancing. He lurched toward what was left of the crowd. Helen grabbed Tom by the arm and pulled him out of the way. Emmanuel Khan, all smoldering hair and a stink of singed meat, swept past them into the drapes of the living room's front window. The gun went off and shot out one of the panes as he fell to the floor. Fire swept up the fabric and leapt onto the couch. The place was in an uproar. Tom and Helen made for the back door through the smoke and commotion. He looked over his shoulder and saw three things happen almost simultaneously. Somehow, Crory had come up with a fire extinguisher and was dowsing the blameless, the drapes and furniture. Ina had made it to the cot and was helping Grace up. The last was the most spectacular. Morrison Zeck, that lanky kid who'd not shown himself all night, appeared. He pushed Ina onto the floor and helped the bleary Grace stand by putting her arm over his shoulders. The two of them headed for the front door. That was the last Tom saw before he and Helen passed into the dining room and onto the kitchen. Outside, it was still drizzling. They ran into Bill Stewart, standing amid a clutch of neighbors on the front lawn. Did you see it? He asked Tom. I thought you were asleep in the dining room. No, I woke up when the second act got underway. I caught most of it, but once he started shooting, I took off. Remind me never to doubt the existence of demons again, said Tom. Unbelievable, said Bill. I don't buy it, said Helen. Well, you may not. But Emmanuel Kahn did, said Tom. Twenty minutes passed, and yet the neighbors remained on the lawn in the fine drizzle, waiting for a sign that all was well. Eventually, the front door opened and the reverend appeared in the porch light, somewhat blackened and frayed, but 
on his feet. He carried his black bag in one hand and his pistol in the other. Crory and Ina appeared behind him in the doorway. Khan turned and yelled back at them. You'll be hearing from my lawyer. As he passed toward the road and his car, he glowered at the crowd. Ignorant sinners, he shouted. If that's an act, said Bill, he should be on America's Got Talent. He's a menace, said Helen. Tom looked to the house and saw Ina weaving across the lawn toward the neighbors. He barely heard her voice as she thanked Jake and Alice and O'Shea. Behind her, Mr. Crory sat on the porch, his powder blue jacket and bow tie gone, his face in his hands, elbows resting on knees. It looked like he was sobbing. Check it out, Tom said to Helen and nudged her. She turned and looked. What a mess, she said. I've been exactly there more than once, said Tom. Ina staggered over to them in her rounds. I'm so sorry about tonight, she said. Please forgive us. The last thing we wanted was to put you in harm's way. The exorcist came highly recommended. Recommended by who? asked Bill. He had four five-star reviews out of six on Yahoo, she said. No sweat, said Tom. Ina said to Helen, can I talk to you for a second? and took her wrist. They moved away from Tom and Bill. Fifteen minutes later, Tom and Helen were in their CRV, moving slowly along the twisting suburban night streets. Helen drove. Tom squinted and scanned the hedge-lined properties, the oak thickets and trim lawns. Why didn't they just call the cops? Tom asked. You know what that's like from our own kids. Yeah, I remember. They can't have gone far on foot. That Zek kid rescuing Grace reminded me of the end of The Graduate. Well, she's got to get home now. Ina's distraught. Even the weird old man looked on the verge. What are you doing on your phone? You're supposed to be keeping an eye out. How are we going to miss her? She's dressed like the fucking Snow Queen. I'm looking up if there's such a thing as self-inflating balloons. I'm telling you, it was all tricks gone wrong, she said. Here it is. There is such a thing as self-inflating balloons, but they don't look anything like that stuff the blameless was pulling out of grace. That shit seemed alive. Remember Jurassic Park? The dinosaurs? Did they look real? Yeah. Case closed. Why don't you head over by the lake? That's where our guys always went to get in trouble. They drove slowly, in silence, till they arrived at the dirt parking lot near the playground at Holloway Lake. The rain had stopped and the moon played peekaboo from behind the clouds. Helen put the car in park and reached to turn the lights off. She didn't, though. You see out to the left, near the shore, over by where the cattails start? I think there's somebody sitting on that bench. He squinted. I can't see shit. Come on, we'll go check it out, she said, and killed the headlights. What if it's Moxiotan? She opened the door and got out. He followed her. They walked across the sand beyond the swing set. The lake smelled of spring and stirred in the breeze. Tell me honestly, he said. When the blameless first spoke of Moxiotan, did you ever think he was going to pull that demon from her big toe? That one will come from lower down, she said in the reverend's voice and laughed. If you're right, and it's an act, it's genius. The gun was a surprise. Next time we get an invitation to one of these, say no. Helen raised her arm and motioned for him to be quiet. They were getting closer to the bench. Walk soft, she whispered. They drew within twenty feet, and the moon came through the clouds, the girl's dress shone like a beacon in the sudden light. Grace and Morrison Zek slumped shoulder to shoulder, both asleep. Tom and Helen quietly moved a few feet closer. She took his wrist when she wanted him to stop. They stood in silence for a moment. Tom leaned down and whispered in her ear, That Zek kid is a goofball. Helen shook her head. 
Do I call Ina? He asked, taking out his cell phone. It took her a while to answer. No, she said. I don't think so. Why not? They're too young to be lovers. They must be friends. When the moon went away, they walked back to the CRV and drove home. Later, the rain started in again. The sound and smell of spring came through the screen of their bedroom window while he dreamt in the language the angels dream in, and she of the land without worry. Small-town America is frequently a magnet for graphic and disturbing horror fiction, so it's refreshing to see the suburbs inflicted with a little supernatural absurdity for a change, the kind of unsettling weirdness that makes one laugh and cringe at the same time. Our second story is from horror writer Brian Keane, the lead on Realm's Silverwood podcast, and also a co-writer on Marvel's Thor Metal Gods and Exquisite Corpse. His tale, Not Alone, was commissioned by Realm in 2020 as part of a series of pandemic-themed stories and is narrated by Leon Nixon. No one wants to be alone as the world ends, not even during a zombie apocalypse. Gentle listeners, please sit back, strap in, and enjoy Not Alone. I've got to tell you, Bert, after the virus, I figured it would be the loneliness that killed me. Instead, I reckon it's going to be this goddamn tooth. Now see, you just moaned in response. Is that you agreeing with me, or are you just making fun of how I'm talking right now? I can't help it, Bert. I apologize if I'm mumbling, but it hurts to talk. The right side of my jaw is swollen and hot. There's little tendrils of pain running down my throat and up into my ear. It feels like tiny spider webs. I tried telling myself that maybe it wasn't the tooth. Maybe it was just an ear infection or a sore throat. Maybe strep. But I know that ain't it. It's infection, Bert. Plain and simple. And it's spreading. If I open my mouth the whole way, it hurts. But if I mumble like I'm doing now, I can manage. So, you go on and moan, and I'll go on and slur, and together we can still have a conversation. Just like we used to do before all this began. I still think Hamlin's Revenge is a stupid nickname for a virus. I mean, I get it, sort of. I know that it has something to do with the Pied Piper from the children's stories and the fact that the virus started with rats, but still, it's a dumb name. Maybe if they called it something else, more people would have taken it seriously and things wouldn't be the way they are now. You remember when it first started? And you and me and Henry and Cecil were standing outside the convenience store having our coffee? just like we used to do every morning, and talking about the news footage? Sure, the video of those rats swarming out of the subway system and biting folks during rush hour was disturbing, but that was happening in New York City, not here in Wampum, West Virginia. And then, when they told us the rats were dead and everybody started making zombie jokes, but that's what they were, as it turned out. Right, Bert? Zombies. Just like in the movies. Although I reckon the movies only got it half right. On television, it's just the people that come back as zombies. In real life, that virus spread like wildfire, infecting animals and people alike. They told us to distance ourselves from others, from people and animals alike. But that's hard to do when the infected don't follow that rule. Hard to distance yourself from something that doesn't share your concerns in that regard. Remember how the talking heads on TV used to make fun of us? calling us preppers as if it was some sort of political thing? I guess the joke's on them, Bert. Prepping. They can call it that if they like. Rural folks like us just call it common sense. Snowstorms, floods, forest fires. These things happen on occasion, and when they did, you had to fend for yourself. I still got enough food and supplies to last for another month. Still got enough antibiotics, too. Except that they've stopped working. I'm glad Myrna isn't here to see all this. In hindsight, it's a blessing that the ovarian cancer took her three years ago. But I was so lonely, Bert. I mean, sure, I hung out with you and the other old-timers down at the convenience store every day, but 
when I'd get home of an afternoon, the house just seemed so empty and quiet. I turned the television up loud just to fill the silence, but that only works for so long. And of course now I can't play the television at all. Sure, we can still watch DVDs or listen to music. That generator outside still has plenty of fuel. But you and I both know that any noise we make is going to attract them. It's better to stay quiet. Better to have hushed talks like what we're doing now. I learned that early on into the pandemic when Sally Hanks' boy showed up. What was that kid's name? Do you remember? No? Well, I guess it don't matter none now. It took me four shots to put him down, Bert. That don't sit right with me. And you know what a good shot I am. Even in my 70s, I can still bring down a buck with one clean shot. But Sally's boy? It's hard to aim when you're crying, I guess. Those zombie animals have been a more immediate threat. All those corpses laying out there in the yard now. All the deer and squirrels and such. I've never smelled anything so terrible, Bert. Except for maybe you. I'll tell you, old friend. I was happy when you showed up here. I mean, it broke my heart that you were one of them and that you were only here to eat me. But I was still glad to see you in some weird sort of way. And I'm sorry again about putting you in the dog cage. Trust me, Bert, that was as tough on me as it was on you. Even with that makeshift tool I rigged up with the broom handle and the collar so that I could keep my distance from you. Wrangling you was like wrestling with a bull calf when you're about to turn it into a steer. Nearly thought you had me a couple of times. But it all worked out okay. You've got room in there to move around, even if you can't stand up. And I was able to drag the cage in here into the house, even though you gnawed at my leather work gloves through the mesh the whole time. Good thing you didn't have your dentures in when you died, right? I threw the gloves out, of course. Can't take any chances with infection from Hamlin's revenge. Instead, I've just got the old run-of-the-mill kind of infection. It's been nice having you here. Having someone to talk to. And I don't reckon I mind the smell so much anymore. I stink, too. Every time I open my mouth, I can smell it. I remember how my dentist used to make such a big deal about the fact that a person my age still had their wisdom teeth. I guess that's not very common. But boy, do I wish I didn't have them now. It started hurting me two days after the government ordered everyone to shelter in place. I kept the pain manageable by switching between Tylenol and Advil and with the bottle of bourbon atop the kitchen cupboard. But getting rid of the pain doesn't get rid of the problem, Bert. And that's where we are now. I had antibiotics. I still have them. Got them at the pet store. It's amoxicillin for fish tanks but it's the exact same kind that give human beings. I took a 10-day dose of those, and they worked pretty well. I thought it was all over with. But then the infection came back, and now the pills aren't working. I reckon the bacteria has built up an immunity to them. I remember when I was little, my grandmother used to make a tooth tonic out of lavender and skullcap, both of which grew wild in the hollow around her place. I thought about heading out into the woods and looking for some. But we both know I wouldn't get very far. If it was a regular tooth, I'd soak my needle-nose pliers in rubbing alcohol and yank it out myself. But you can't do that with a wisdom tooth. For that, you need a surgeon. And I don't reckon there are any of those left alive. Even if there are, we'd have no way of getting to them. So, that's where I'm at. I'm glad you're here, Bert. I was so scared of dying alone. It's a comfort to know that won't happen. But I don't want you to be alone either after I'm dead. I ain't been bit, so if the folks on the news were correct, I won't come back as a zombie. I'll just sit here in this chair, rotting. And that's not fair to you, because you'll still be stuck in that cage. So here's what I'm going to do, Bert. Listen up. I don't know if you can really understand me or not, although I reckon a part of you must still have some sort of memory. Why else would you have walked all the way here after you died? 
There's a part of you deep inside that decomposing brain that must remember that we were friends. In a minute, I'm going to take that pocket knife there on the end table, and I'm going to cut my finger open. I'll make it wide and deep, make it easy for you. Then I'm going to stick my finger into the cage. If you're still my friend, all I ask is that you make it quick. Like I said, you don't have your dentures, and I don't fancy getting my finger gummed by you for the rest of the day. So be quick about it. Get your spit into the wound. Let's use Hamlin's revenge to combat the other infection. When we're done, I'll unlock your cage. Then I'll go into the bathroom and wait to die. I hope you're still here when I come out again. I hope we remember each other. I hope this works and that the pain goes away. I hope I'm not alone after death. You know, all things being equal, I think I'd rather be alone during the zombie apocalypse. In the mood for more horror? Check out the aforementioned Silverwood. Deep in the serene forests of California, a monster from another dimension is desperate for human blood. Or try Low Life, horror comedy featuring a chupacabra exterminator and a marine biology student who become unlikely allies while solving a monstrous murder. Both shows are out now and available wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, whatever dimension you're in, safe travels. You're listening to Tales Beyond Time, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Tales Beyond Time, Episode 38, features The Blameless, written by Jeffrey Ford. And Not Alone, written by Brian Keane. It is produced by Mary Osadolahi and Marco Palmieri. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw and executive produced by Molly Barton. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and performed by Stephen J. Cohen and Leon Nixon. Audio produced by Spoken Realms and Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Nicholas Papaleo. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. 